Perhaps the most frequently asked question when people want to talk about their spiritual practice, about their Buddhist practice, is along the lines of how do I use my meditation to deal with this? Or how do I use my spiritual disciplines to deal with such and such a situation? And I think it is a good well, my own contemplation of this, I think it is a good test or barometer for the validity of a spiritual vehicle, um, whether it's reliable under all circumstances. Uh, maybe uh, it might make us feel good if we're surrounded by like-minded people, if we've got lots of people who agree with us, but does it help us when we're feeling isolated and there's people around us who don't agree with us or... Maybe it supports us when we're on our own, but when we're in a group situation, we, uh, we lose ourselves. Maybe it's fine when we're on meditation retreat, but when we're at work, we fall apart. Or in a restaurant, we, we lose it. In my own contemplation of this, I was trying to remember a message that Ajahn Chah sent to us uh, in the very early days in Chithurst, he had been to visit, like, at the very beginning, um, 1979 or 1980. And uh, then he fell ill when he got back to Thailand and he, he never came to visit again. But uh, he did visit Chithurst in the very, very beginning. But then a couple of years later, he he sent this tape message and I was racking my brains trying to remember this advice that he gave to Ajahn Sumato, he was saying basically, you know, the abbot of a monastery is like being a rubbish tin. You know, everybody just dumps all their rubbish in you and you just got to deal with it. That's your function. And, and if nobody else dumps their rubbish, you've got to scoop it up and dump it yourself. And, and I was trying to remember the words that he used and I had the impression that it was um, big-hearted and broad-minded. And so... Eventually, I dug around in the archives and I, I actually found the original tape, which was really neat. And it was a good quality recording and listening to Ajahn Chah talk about in such a loving, caring way about you know, his young monks and nuns starting out in Chithurst. It was uh, very beautiful to listen to. Uh, as it is, the, uh, the expression he used was a far-sighted and subtle and... Um, but I think all of these terms, if we're looking at how we bring our spiritual discipline into the world of difficulties, conundrums, paradoxes, hassles, um, being far-sighted, being subtle, being big-hearted, being broad-minded, all of these pertain. And... Of course, the important thing to 
bring to heart, bring to mind, is that these are not just injunctions to believe in. This is not like being told that the Buddha is omnipotent or omnipresent or something, and so we believe in it. Rather, this is a description of the Buddha's experience. The Buddha was so big-hearted, so broad-minded, that he was actually limitless. And you, you, um, you perhaps heard us chant, and, and, and I've spoken about it many occasions before, the, the, uh, one of the pretty chants, the blessing chants we do is, is Apamano Buddho, Apamano Dhammo, Apamano Sankho, which is that the Buddha is limitless, the Dhamma is limitless, the Sangha is limitless. And what was limitless about the Buddha wasn't necessarily the information that he had acquired about reality. I mean, sometimes people get in these arguments, could, could the Buddha understand a lecture on particle physics or indeed give one? And I don't know. <laughs> I, personally, I, I don't really care whether he could or not. That's not the information that he had. That's not the kind of knowing that was being referred to by his being limitless. It was his knowing, his awareness, his consciousness was, was limitless in the sense that it was free from distortion. For the rest of us, or for him also, before he was the Buddha, he was pamana, he was limited. And what he was limited by was, and this is the essential point, he was limited by the habitual activity of clinging. And this is the distortion of consciousness that the Buddha identified that leads on to all the other really regrettable disfigurations that we experience and referred to as the three poisons. Greed, anger and delusion are uh, poisons which cause our intelligence and our sensitivity to be compromised and we end up in behaving in ways that bring suffering to ourselves and others. And the remedy to this tragic circumstance that the Buddha realised for himself was freeing consciousness from all habits of clinging. So the Buddha was limitless in the sense that his awareness was not limited. Our awareness, our awareness, potentially the same as the Buddha's awareness, he was a human being like us. You know, he said, you know, he wasn't a god, he wasn't an angel, wasn't a deva. He walked on planet Earth, ate breakfast and took a bath in the evening like we do and had a consciousness like we have. But... The different thing was that he wasn't imposing limitations on his consciousness. We do. And the investigation that we're wise to engage with is that this imposing of limitations through habitual clinging is not an obligation. This is something that we potentially can change. The, if we get interested in this, then maybe we start to see for ourselves that we can inhibit these tendencies to cling. It's something that, you know, if you look at children, look at the way children, before they can walk, you know, they cling to things to steady themselves, trying to find security. And then as they, they learn to stand up, they cling to hold themselves up and 
and then they can walk and then they cling to other things and they start to cling to my things and then they start to cling to the perception of me and mine and then they start to cling to their reputation, their friends and their personality and if as children, as we all were obviously, in the process of growing up don't learn the lesson that this clinging process has got a relative function. It's okay, it's suitable in certain circumstances, but we need to grow out of it. Clinging is okay for children. Holding, we all need to hold, but there's a world of difference between holding and clinging. The Buddha held held to things, the Buddha held to all sorts of things, but he didn't cling. So somewhere along the line, hopefully we all get the message that we can learn to stop clinging and mindfully hold, sensitively hold life, hold experience as it comes to us. And this, this is a training that we can engage with. Again, it's not a belief system. It's not something that we have to just go along with. But the Buddha and all the great teachers have, have endlessly made effort to give us guidance in how to learn to do this, how to learn, or as Ajahn Chah would say, how to learn to let go, let go of the habits of clinging. There's many, many ways and many occasions that he would would talk about that. So the feelings that we all naturally have of wanting to be in control, it's understandable that we want to be in control of our life and control of the world obviously we realise we can't totally control but we all feel like we want to control and if we investigate this impulse to control in a big hearted, broad minded way not just in a habitual way not just following our our inclinations, our inclination is to control everything you know like this is you hear this, this insult Bantered around, oh, he or she's a real control freak. We're all control freaks. Well, if we're not control freaks, we're control freaks in recovery. You know, that's what that's what the unawakened personality does. It, it just loves controlling. So, so, pretending that we don't love controlling—that's that's not necessary. Well, it's not honest, and not not helpful. And what's more honest and more helpful is to get interested in this feeling of controlling and looking at our relationship to it. A, a psychologist was talking to me recently about this, this matter of human beings need, having the, the need to feel they're in control and, and I was uh, suggesting that there are different ways of controlling. You can, you can control willfully, you know, which is what you know, children learn to do and it's important in stages of development that that they realise they have this ability. But there's another way of controlling which perhaps you could de- describe as, as controlling with awareness. It's like, you know, if you think of, if you think of training a dog, you know, like a little puppy, you know, I mean like a really smart one, like a border collie or something, you know, really potentially clever animal. And, but you can't just give it free reign. Can you? Okay. You know, if you give it free reign, there's no training there. You know, you want to have a working relationship with this 
with this, this animal, you, there needs to be some degree of training. But if you put it on a leash and you hold it too tightly, that's not it, is it? It just, just gets upset, maybe gets hurt. If you don't have any leash on it, any hold on it, that's not it. So through awareness, through observation, through observation, you develop a mature relationship that works. And so it is with our relationship to life, it's not the case that we have to have a short leash in everything, which is if we haven't stopped to inspect the way we relate to Life is, 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 is often the way we approach things. We're trying to, trying to micromanage, as they say in the business world, you know, trying to be in there controlling everything. Whereas if we expand our field of awareness, if we open our hearts, get bigger, and I was telling you before this, this Thai word that Ajahn Chai used, that uh, I was trying to think of that the word for big heart is jayai, you know, big hearted. And it's not just something to believe in, but something we can, we can contemplate, how to be big hearted. And instead of when we're faced with a conundrum, when we're faced with a difficulty, we're faced with some sort of a challenge, rather than defaulting to our habitual reaction of trying to control and get it how we want it to be, maybe we can stop and remember our refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha is limitless. How do we do that? Well, take a deep breath, get bigger, you know, make the suggestion that we can expand. We can expand our field of awareness. And the field of awareness is it's not a fixed thing. The, the world that we live in, the awareness that we're equipped with, if we stop and bring awareness to awareness itself and bring awareness to the quality of consciousness that we're living out of, maybe we start to see we can do something about this. Yeah. Is awareness, is it closed, is it contracted, or is it expanded? Is it pure and bright, or is it polluted? Hmm. The, everybody presumably agrees that education is a good thing. Education is held up as the solution to all problems, but it, um, you know, again, it's like, well, food. Everybody needs food, but you know, you can eat good food or you can eat junk food. You can eat pure, wholesome food, or you can eat food that's full of all sorts of chemicals that might give you some energy, but might also make you sick, throw your system out of balance. And similarly with education, now we can get an education that if it's a purely materialistic-based education, then it focuses on things like productivity, how to control and manipulate things so we can get more things. But there's another dimension to education which is profoundly important, and that is the quality of knowing, the quality of awareness. how How do we approach things rate of the quality or the amount of education that's available now is, is growing exponentially around the world. I'm sure if somebody did a graph on it, if they had the research, they would be able to measure it. But so is the rate of suicide. And I don't think it's just amongst frustrated farmers who don't have access to their seeds anymore because of the, 
people who are controlling these things. A lot of it would be amongst those who are educated. So education in itself, per se, is not the solution. It's whether it's a balanced education, whether we exercise our approach to life with a quality of awareness that is pristine, expanded, accommodating, pure, or whether it's narrow, tight, contracted, and distorted. That's a really important message, I think, if we're looking at how to translate our spiritual disciplines into something that applies throughout all of our life. One of the distortions that probably all of us are familiar with when it comes to engaging the quality of awareness that we have, that we live out of, is the compulsive discriminating. Yeah, I was uh, having a conversation with, with somebody recently about a particular phase of their life or a particular situation and and they were saying that they they just don't know what to do and they were talking about it in a way that sounded like they felt really guilty they felt like a failure but when we talked about it i think we got to the point where where we agreed that actually not knowing what to do is quite normal that's that's a normal predicament you know, most of our life we live in a state of not knowing what to do. Yeah. But again, the kind of education that we've had is we, we perhaps overvalue a sort of knowing that's to do with how we control and manipulate things. Yeah. To know that we don't know is really important. Yeah. And if we can identify from a big-hearted, broad-minded perspective, if we can identify the state of compulsive discriminating, as you look at it and hold it, don't cling. If we identify it from a, a small-minded perspective, you come across something like self-conceit or arrogance or compulsive discriminating, some such mind state, and then immediately we struggle with it. Oh, it shouldn't be this way, I've got to get rid of it. But again, if, if our approach to that is to stop, take a deep breath, the Buddha is my refuge. The Buddha is limitless. Get bigger. Get bigger. Expand. Expand the field of awareness. This is not a belief. This is not just an intellectual exercise, but feeling awareness. Yeah. Feeling awareness, which means we like create space for this state of compulsive discriminating. This compulsive judging mind that that trips me up all the time, right, wrong, should, shouldn't, good, bad. It's it's painful. Now, taking a position against it, trying to get rid of it, that's just compulsive discriminating again. It shouldn't be this way. Of course, the the facility for discriminating is, is, uh, I mean, that's surely one of the most important aspects of our humanity. We can discriminate between skillful and unskillful, and safe and unsafe. So that's perfectly suitable. But the way we hold it is totally not suitable. We cling to it. 
Not because we're bad, but because we were taught that way. And we never got taught as an alternative. You can hold the discriminative capacity lightly. So if we expand our field of awareness, it's like that. Discriminating mind. Discriminating mind. It's like there's nothing wrong with it. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I should do in the situation. No judgment. No judgment. It doesn't have to be a judgment. Hmm. Boredom. That's an interesting one. We just had a, a week retreat in the monastery here. Silent practice week, we call it. And, and if you're living in a monastery, it can be incredibly boring. Monasteries so it can be really boring. Really lonely. It's another one, being lonely. You, you want to know loneliness, or you come and live in a monastery. Or boring. You know, it's not just the tedious dhamma talks that you have to listen to. It's just endless evenings on your own, just stuck with nothing to do. It's just boring. Yeah. How do we receive that? How do we receive the state of boredom or the state of loneliness? If we receive it in an expanded field of awareness, take a deep breath open our minds, get bigger, let go of the habits of clinging, let go of the limitations that we impose on awareness because we're interested in the experiment of what it's like to relate to life in that expanded, open-hearted way. And what happens is boredom is just a very mild form of resentment for nothing interesting happening. Boredom's not that big a deal. It is subtle. It's just subtle. It's not like you're not in a raging fit over something. It's a subtle form of ill will towards nothing interesting happening. And maybe maybe the boundary between intolerable boredom and being peaceful and pensive is not such a big thing. It's a subtle shift. But if we're still locked into our compulsive, controlling, manipulating habit of dealing with life, controlling with will rather than controlling with awareness, then maybe we don't get to see that. And we habitually make boredom into a problem. We make loneliness into a problem. I mean, loneliness can be really, really, really painful. But if we expand awareness to receive it without judgment, without compulsive taking sides for and against, the middle way. The Buddha's very first discourse about taking a position for pleasure then taking a position against pleasure. These two extremes, he says, neither of them work. They just take you into more hassle. Indulging in pleasure and denying pleasure are a hassle. And then he said the middle way, the middle way of knowing, free from distortion of clinging, the middle way means that pleasure is just so, and we can relate to it in a responsible manner. Pain is just so. The pain of loneliness is like this. And maybe if we have this kind of awareness with which we can receive the experience of loneliness, maybe the very experience of loneliness teaches us how to let go. Let go of these limitations that we impose it's the pain, actually. <laughs> you know, Buddha's teaching on the four noble truths. You know, mindfulness of suffering leads to freedom from suffering. 
But if we're investigating the Four Noble Truths in a very, very small, narrow, contracted space, maybe we just get tied up in knots. So I think this is worth remembering. That the way we approach our conundrums, the crises of life, personal ones, collective ones, Another one I've been thinking about recently is uh, is this uh, word covetousness, which when I stop to think about it, I don't know that I've heard of that word since Sunday school. But if we covet something, that leads to painfulness. But in a world that is generally speaking... You know, defined by habits of clinging and grasping and, and greed, uh, then to covet something, you know, to long for something with the sense that you're entitled to have it, whether it's longing for fame or longing for money or longing for possessions, with the sense that you're entitled to have it, uh, it leads to imbalance in the mind, it leads to more suffering. And why don't why don't we see these things? Why don't we why don't we tune in to the things that are really making our life difficult? Like, you know, compromising precepts, uh, uh, compromising self respect. Uh, a lot of a lot of folk are busy going around uh, doing just that, uh, compromising precepts and. And but don't want to deal with the consequences. You know, maybe take some pharmaceutical product or something to to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, why don't we tune in? Why don't we get the message that life is giving us? I would suggest that it's not just the nature of the difficulty, but the way we approach it is is primary. And so, as Ajahn Chah was saying to Ajahn Sumedho when we started Chittist, whatever, thirty something years ago. There's a lot of difficulties uh, trying to translate a, a very traditional Buddhist monastic form from a totally different culture into this one. There's, uh, you know, abbots don't get sent to abbot college to get taught how to do it, and you just kind of get dumped in this position and expected to be perfect. And, of course, you can't be. So there's a, a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties but the thing is, when we find these challenges, we find these difficulties, how do we meet them? How do we approach them? Mm-hmm. If we're not educated in how to cultivate awareness itself, how to bring awareness to awareness itself, if we're not educated in that, then maybe we just default to some coping mechanism, which often involves depending on somebody else. So a friend who these days is living in Czech Republic was telling me yesterday that there's this thing now that with the uh, overly active, stressed out middle class, they, uh, a lot of them now these days, they, they'll go off to a hotel out in the countryside and they'll spend, I think he said it was something like 5,000 crowns, which in Czech Republic is a lot of money. Uh, and all that happens is basically they take your phone from you. That's all that happens. They just take your phone and lock it up. And that's basically, you just pay somebody to take your phone and put it in the safe. The rest, whatever you do, the rest of the, week, the weekend is up to you. You know, go for a walk in the forest, whatever. <laughs> but you pay all this money 
just so that somebody deprives you of access to your tweets or your whatever else. And that's asking somebody else to take responsibility for our difficulty. Now, it's, uh, it, it may well be a useful exercise to not look at your phone you know, one day a week or one day a month or something. It might be a useful exercise. But what would be more helpful is if we get to that point through wise reflection, through seeing that being addicted to this particular hit you know, is an expression of my being identified in this very limited, small, contracted world. And it's not an obligation. And so the answer to how to bring our spiritual practice into daily life situations where we're faced with real, real challenges, don't let ourselves default to manipulating the content of the experience. But remember our refuge in the Buddha, as I suggested, you could... Stop, take a deep breath, or in formal meditation, cultivate the sense of expanding. You know, like if you imagine your field of awareness is like, like a space of light, and when you bring your awareness to your body sitting there in meditation, you just see that field, that field of light expanding. Imagine it. And what does that feel like? What does that feel like? You can drop in the word expanding, broadening, uh, getting bigger, big-hearted, broad-minded. Words are symbols. We tend to dismiss symbols and rituals, but actually we all use symbols. I mean, words are symbols. They're very powerful symbols. It's just the same as when you shake hands with somebody. It's a symbolic gesture of wanting to communicate. Use words, the word like expand, broaden, these are really powerful symbols. If you're an English-speaking person, you know, as a sound symbol, the word broaden can have a very powerful effect on our awareness. So tuning into this, recognizing we have this ability, uh, physically in the body, relax, stop, breathe, and then inwardly, mentally also, engaging in whatever exercise we can to that symbolise this feeling of, of expanding and broadening. And so not simply reacting to the situations we find ourselves in with a conditioned reaction, but remembering that there's something we can do about it. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu, sadhu.